Well, this is, uh, this is our last sermon in the series on doubt. Hopefully, uh, you found something in the series that's been helpful to you in, in maybe wrestling with some of your doubt and some of your, um, some of your challenges that you face and trials that you're going through. Uh, we're going to talk, as I said, just said, about Moses this morning um, and uh, what he did and his mistake that he made. But at, before we get there, I think if we, could, if we could use one word to describe our our culture, um, our times, that one word would probably be busy. We're, we're really proud of how busy we are, right? Somebody asks you, how are you doing? Oh, I'm busy, right? How many times do you say that? I say it all the time. We feel like we need to justify, you know, we, we're busy. We're doing stuff. We're, we're active. We're, we're engaged. We're not just sitting around doing nothing, especially, you know, when we're, um, we're trying to justify our ministry. You know, I want to tell everybody about all the stuff we're doing, not that we're, you know, sitting back and you know, hanging out in a hammock or something. Nobody wants to support that. They want to support work. But we, we are very busy. Um, when I was a SWO, our unofficial motto, especially with regard to sleep, was, uh, you know, three hours a night whether you need it or not. Or, you know, the, the other one was uh, he who leaves latest wins, right? Uh, so we, 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 we prize, we hold up as, uh, we brag about how busy we are. Um, but we are overwhelmed we're frustrated and uh, we're exasperated by how busy we are. I mean, I think if, if I had you raise hand, raise your hands, no hand would go up if I said, anybody have plenty of time? You, we're, all, we're all very busy. We all have a lot to do. Um, so I want to show you a quick video of somebody who has a lot to do. All right, girls, listen carefully. This is the wrapping department. Yes, ma'am. Now, the candy will pass by on this conveyor belt and continue into the next room where the girls will pack it. Now, your job is to take each piece of candy and wrap it in one of these papers and then put it back on the belt. You understand? Yes, sir. Yes, yes. ma'am. Let her roll! <laughs> Wait here. Somebody's asleep at the switch. <laughs> what are you doing up here? I thought you were downstairs boxing chocolates. Oh, they kicked me out of there fast. Why? I kept pinching them to see what kind they were. <laughs> this is the fourth department I've been in. Oh, I didn't do so well either. No. All right, girls. Now, this is your last chance. If one piece of candy gets past you and into the packing room unwrapped, you're fired. Yes, ma'am. Let her roll. <laughs> oh, this is easier. Yeah, we can handle this, okay?
splendidly. Speed it up, but a goodie. Um, sometimes it feels like just when we're getting the hang of things, they, somebody yells, speed it up. And, uh, you know, they, they, they look like they had their things together, like they, like they were doing well, and hey, okay, you're, you got it together. You've put on a good show. Let me give you some more. Um, so what I want to say this morning is it's just because, and as is Moses' case, we're doing God's work, doesn't mean there's not going to be frustrations or challenges. Just because we are gifted and blessed for work doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. When God calls us to something, he equips us for that. God called Moses uh, to this work. He called Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt uh, and uh, into the desert, and he gave him a stick. So he had that going for him. He had a stick, but, you know, he also, he had been a shepherd in the desert for 40 years, so he kind of knew his way around, knew how to find water and how to find shelter and how to be safe in the desert. Um, Moses had a speech impediment. God gave him Aaron to speak for him. Oh, by the way, a little tidbit I learned, um, the, the Talmud, the, uh, the, the priest, uh, the, the rabbi uh, tradition says the reason Moses had this speech impediment was when he was a child, uh, he was sitting on Pharaoh's knee. And, uh, and he snatched the crown off of Pharaoh's head. I, I've never seen an Egyptian with a crown, but. Um, and, and Jethro, Moses' future father-in-law, happened to be there. I, I don't put a whole lot of stake in the story. But um, uh, Jethro, well, the, the priest said that, uh, you know, it's, it's, he has to be killed. He's, he's trying to seize the throne from Pharaoh, so he has to be killed. And Jethro, um, Moses' future father-in-law, said it's just, it's just the... A child reaching for something beautiful, you know. And so they, they put this test before Moses. They put a pile of gold and a pile of coals in front of him. And Moses reached for the coals and put it in his mouth. And that's what, it burned his tongue and so he had this speech impediment. Whatever. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting story. But Moses had this speech impediment. Um, God gave him Aaron to speak for him. Uh, Moses had this overwhelming work to do. Uh, God gave him Jethro, his father-in-law, to teach him how to delegate if you remember that story. God showed himself face to face to Moses, gave him the Ten Commandments directly from his own hand. So God equipped Moses for this work that he had called him to do. But yet we have, uh, as, we, uh, as we'll read here this morning, uh, we have Moses making a mistake, sinning and being frustrated. So uh, if you will, turn to page, uh, not no, page numbers, 20, we'll begin in verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 2 of Numbers chapter 20, and it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible, if, if you want to read along, I, I greatly appreciate that, but um, beginning in verse 2 of Numbers chapter 20, it says, now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses <coughs> and said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made 
us to come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place. It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from, from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy." So let's look first at Moses' frustration. Moses had spent his, the, the majority of his life leading, leading, taking care of these rebellious and unappreciative people. He was frustrated. He wasn't appreciated. You know, they, they, they didn't do what he said. They, every time he turned around, God's like, I'm going to strike him down. And Moses' like, wait, you know, have mercy. Okay, you know, it's just, just time and again putting himself out there, and, and they're just, they're not listening. Um, I, we didn't read it, but in verse 1 of this chapter, his sister just died. So he's grieving over the loss of his sister. He's dealing with the, these rebellious people. He, he's overwhelmed. I mean, 40 years. This, this place, this rock where they are, they'd been here before, 40 years ago. Um, that uh, and when Moses brought water out of the rock and, and the rebellion of the people 40 years ago, God said, I'm going to wait for, for them all to die off. None of them are going to make it in the promised land. I'm going to wait for a whole new generation to come and then they're going to go in the promised land. So here we are at the end of 40 years in the same place we were at the beginning of the 40 years and now these people are rebelling again and Moses is like, oh, I can't do this another 40 years, right? So he's 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 dealing with, is God going to punish us? Is God going to punish another generation for their rebellion here at these same waters or the same rock where there was no water? You know, Moses is, you know, I imagine him saying, after all I've done for you, this is the thanks I get. I don't know. My, my mom used to say that. You, you as a parent may say that. It says that this was at Massa, uh, Meribah and Massa. The waters of testing and the waters of argument or grumbling. Um, this is where the people's faith is put to, te- to the test. This is where Moses' faith is put to the test. And you, you get a sense of his frustration when he says in verse 10, Hear now, you rebels. You know, just the contempt that he has for them. The, the, he's angry. He's, he's tired of dealing with all of their drama. And he, he's, he's just, he's yelling at him. He's, he's angry and he's frustrated. Um, in, again, in, verse, in Exodus chapter 17, uh, it talks about the first time they had been there. 
So again, this isn't the group. They had never been here before. They didn't know these, this rock. They, didn't, they may have remembered a story about a rock uh, given some water before, but they didn't know this was the place. So Moses is in a place where he's been before. And if you recall maybe the story uh, over in, in Exodus chapter 17, God tells him to strike the rock and water will come forth. This time, God says, speak to the rock so the waters will come forth. So parents, leaders, we, we sometimes will get angry and speak harshly to our children, as I, as I mentioned, or those that are following us. Um, sometimes being a parent is hard. Uh, most of the time being a parent is hard. Teaching is not necessarily easy. It's easier just to do it yourself in a lot of cases, but you know, we, we have to teach them. We have to mold them and, and show them how to do it there on their own because we know we won't always be there. Moses knew he wouldn't always be there to take care of the people. You know, and, and we get that. We get kind of the parental sense when, when they start asking why questions in verse 5. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Um, but again, as, a, as, as Moses is dealing with these people, can you imagine if your children didn't leave home until they were 40? This, I mean, Moses has been dealing with these people for 40 years. I mean, we get frustrated in 18 years. We get frustrated in a couple of years, you know. But he's been dealing with them for 40 years. So Moses was frustrated. He was overwhelmed. He was exasperated by what he was going through. And, uh, and, and it came out. So what did he do? The next point, uh, Moses' failure. Verse 11 says that in anger, it said Moses lifted up his hand and struck the, rod, struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. Verse 8, God said, when, when Moses, Moses and Aaron did the right thing, the people call, cry out, they start getting upset, and Moses and Aaron went to God. Perfect, Right? That's the way, I have a need, we have an issue. They fell on their faces before God. God, what should we do? And God said in verse 8, take the staff, the stick that I gave you, assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. But Moses instead, verse, eight, or verse 11 says that he struck the rock twice. Again, that's what he did last time. But in verse 10, it says, you know, again, you get that sense, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Moses inserts himself into the equation. He was, he was the instrument of God, and here he's making himself the power of God. He's saying, you want me to demonstrate how good I am? Watch, watch this. You know, shall we do this for you? Not shall God do this for you. But I, I imagine, you know, the, the, the details here are, are scant. So, you know, we, we always have to tread carefully when we begin to insert things into the scripture. But I, I, I'm picturing what happened here. So Moses gathers the people like God told him to do. And then he, he comes out with this, this shall we do it thing. And God's like, do what? Shall we? Okay. You got this then. Moses speaks to the rock. Nothing happens. Moses, come forth, water. I don't know what he said. Uh, nothing happens. 
Everybody's looking at me. Everybody's expecting something. You know, maybe he's, you know, he's on the spot. You know, he's kind of a, kind of in a place here. God, what are you doing? You know, you were supposed to do, I was supposed to speak to the rock and nothing's happening. So then, he, then maybe he's going, okay, well, okay, last time we were here, okay, God said stick. Okay, he said speak. Maybe, maybe, maybe I misheard him. Maybe he said strike the rock. He hit the rock. Okay, nothing happened. He hit the rock again. Finally, water comes, comes out. Again, and this is pure speculation. Um, so he's, he's doubting himself, doubting maybe God's instruction, um, and he's under this pressure to perform. So um, a little bit of pride goes in there, and uh, you know, you know maybe, maybe he's afraid God is, is uh, his presence is leaving him or something, and, and the people are all expecting him to find water, and he's falling short. Um, so it wasn't necessarily that, uh, that he struck the rock that was, uh, that was his sin. Uh, it was, as it says in Psalm 32, on Psalm 106, ver- uh, verse 32, Psalm 106, 32 says, They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account. For they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. So Moses' sin was that, he was angry, and he spoke bitter words. It, so it went ill for him at the, at the, the rock, at the waters of Meribah. You know, and, and God said, because you did that, you don't get to go in the promised land. Now, the, when I first read this, I'm thinking, that is not fair. Forty years of faithful service. He's, he's leading these people for 40 years. He's dealing with all of their stuff for 40 years. And he did a good job. The people are the ones who are grumbling. They're the ones that don't have faith. They're the ones complaining. God didn't, they, they all got to go. Well, actually, they didn't. The previous generation didn't get to go. This generation's grumbling again, but they're going to get to go in the promised land. Moses does one thing wrong. See, we have this myth of fairness that in salvation, or when we go to the promised land, that when we uh, arrive before the gates of heaven, there's going to be a scale, and our good deeds have to outweigh our bad deeds. You know, if, if we're tipped on the side of good, then we get to go in. If we're tipped on the side of bad, then we go down. That's not true. I mean, that's, not, that's not God's economy. God's economy, God's standard is perfect. It's either all good and no bad, or it's all bad. There's no, there's no scale. There's, that's a myth. Uh, the other myth that, that this causes me to think this is unfair is that, uh, you know, at least I'm better than that guy. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler, right? You know, I'm better than him, right? So Moses was better than the people, so he should get, if anybody should get in the promised land, it should be Moses, right? So Moses... So those are two myths that, that, that I, I think cause me to, to bristle against, you know, how this is unfair. But we'll, let's look at what, what actually happened here. What, what's at stake with Moses, his, his failure, his, his sin here? This pride that crept in, verse 10, shall we bring forth water? He didn't point to God. He, a matter of fact... As God's representative, misrepresented God. 
He demonstrated anger and frustration. We don't get any sense of that when Moses and Aaron are talking to, to God in prayer. God's not fine, you know, I'll, I'll take care of them again this time. God says, yeah, they need water. Here's water. God didn't, God didn't express any frustration with the people. So Moses, as God's representative, standing for the people, making them think God is frustrated and angry with them. Moses' sin was that he brought focus on himself and not on God. What he failed to do was do what he did right in the first place. He went before God and prayed and said, God, what do we do? But then he turned around and put on this show in front of the people and didn't pray to God. He said, here's what I'm, I'm going to do this. And God didn't do anything. He failed to give public testimony of his private, uh, his private prayer and worship. So one of the things that we see in Moses is this idea that familiarity can breed contempt. Moses saw God face to face, and that is literally awesome. But it became commonplace to him. It became routine for him to go to God and God to speak to him and, you know, okay, I'll do. It just wasn't as big a deal as it should have been. And I think some of us might slip into that. You know, we, we casually approach God, and we can through Christ. We can approach the throne of grace confidently because of Christ's sacrifice, but I think we do it flippantly and at our own peril. We, we lose that sense of wonder and awe of who God is. And we just say, yeah, thanks, God. You know, do this for me. Appreciate it. You know, we, we, don't, we don't fear God. We talked about a couple weeks ago, the, the fear of God, the healthy respect, the, uh, the understanding that God has the power and the authority and the ability to take away everything. He doesn't because he's loving and he's grace, gracious but he has the power to do that, and we need to have that fear. That's, that's one of the reasons that we see pastors failing after 30, 40, 50 years in the ministry. You know, somebody who had been a paragon of the, of the community, of the church, you know, writing books and, and doing amazing things, all of a sudden falls into some kind of moral failure. And how, where did that come from? They were doing so well. You know, they were, they were blessed, and their church was growing, and, and people were getting saved, and how, well, and that, that's what happens. We, we become overly familiar, and we don't have that fear and respect for God, uh, even, even as Christians. And then pastors begin to, to justify some of their sinful behaviors as, as a reward for their faithfulness. I mean, I, I've, read, I've read the accounts, because this is a terrifying thing, you know, that we could, that we could faithfully serve God for decades and then just out of, out of nowhere, fail morally. But they justify it and say, well, I'm doing great things for God. He'll forgive me about this one thing. This pride creeps in. And in Moses' case, this pride was saying, look what I can do. Look what I'm doing. Do I have to do this for you? But he's humbled. God, God says, no, you didn't do this. I did this. God uses us as tools to do his work. 
Remember, God didn't reprimand the people. They had a valid need, and they cried out to Moses, who was God's representative, to say, help us. We're going to die. There's no water. There's no food. Help us. But God did reprimand Moses, the leader of the community, the representative, um, because of if, if he hadn't, the contempt that Moses showed to God would become rampant. Remember back in Numbers 16, maybe not the reference, but Korah. Remember Korah and the rebellion, the, the Korah and, uh, and Dathan and Abiram said, come on, we're, we're just as blessed as you, Moses. Why does God only speak to you? What makes you special? And uh, Moses was, okay, you're right. Why does God only speak to me? And so he, he takes it before God, and God says, okay, have each one of the, the tribal leaders take their a censer and, uh, and, and stand in front of their tent, and those that I bless are, are going to be blessed, and those that I, I don't bless are, are going to know it. So remember, this, the, the earth opened up and swallowed up, not only uh, Dathan, Abiram, and uh, Korah, but their families and all of their possessions. And just, just swallowed them up. Um, because these leaders were showing contempt for God. And then what followed, it says in Numbers uh, 16.30, it says, but, the Lord, but if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that, it belongs, that, all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol... Then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. So they despise the Lord. And what follows from that is this plague that begins in the, in the camp. And before Moses is able to, to go and, and plead with God, 14,700 people died. Because contempt, despising the Lord, had begun to rise up in the community. And God said, okay, we're, we're going we're gonna to fix this. Because what we have to remember is that Israel existed to demonstrate the whole reason God chose Abraham and the children of Israel was to demonstrate his holiness. I am holy, therefore you should be holy. That was, they were a witness to the world. If they failed there, they had no purpose. They had no reason to exist. If they were not demonstrating God's holiness, Israel had no reason to be. So God's like, okay, I'm going to start over. I'm going to go pick somebody else. I'll start with you, Moses. And he said that a couple times. You know what? I want to take them all out, and then I'm going to start with you, and we're going to start over. And you're going to be the father of this nation. Moses and I don't need that kind of notoriety. But so the primary issue here is God's holiness. Moses failed to uphold God's holiness. In Numbers 27, 14, talking, uh, God's talking to Moses and Aaron. He says, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zen when the congregation quarreled, Failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. So there's punishment because you failed to uphold my holiness, God says. In Deuteronomy 32.51, again, another, re, another angle on this. Um, this is God's judgment on Moses at the end of his life. God's basically, this is your life, the old Groucho Marx thing. Uh, this, is, this is what happened in your life. This is God's retelling of Moses' story to him, reminding him of where he's been. He says, because, in verse 51 of Deuteronomy 32, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of 
Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. That's why he doesn't get to go into the promised land. Moses broke faith with God, did not treat God as holy. Moses didn't uphold God's holiness and was punished for it. In this passage, November, uh, November, Numbers 20, the end of the passage that we read, verse 13, says, These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with, with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. In spite of what Moses did, in spite of Moses' failure, in spite of Moses' doubt and breaking faith and not upholding God's holiness, God showed himself to be holy. So how is it fair that Moses gets punished for this? One thing. Now, we have this one record. I'm, Moses wasn't perfect. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. But he sinned in a big way here. So why is it fair that Moses does this one thing and he gets punished for it? Because he's the leader. Again, he's the representative. He is the, uh, he is the pastor of this flock. And he's held to a higher standard. As leaders... People are looking at you. You have to maintain a higher standard. As parents, your kids are looking at you. Terrifying, I know. You are held to a higher standard because you are influencing the lives of others because they're looking to you for an example. How do you respond in these situations? When a pastor fails, it sends shockwaves to the church. When one of these prominent preachers who writes books fails morally. We throw their books away. We, how can I read that book? Even though maybe it was a great book at its, in its time, and it may have blessed you at the time, now you look at the book and all you can see is the failure. Or if a pastor that, that you grew up under who taught and you, you got saved in this pastor's teaching, fails. What, did, it, did it take? Did I really get saved? You know, it, I'm and that's not, that's, not, that's not how it works, but we, it causes doubt in us. If, if it didn't work for him, maybe it didn't take for me. So it sends these shockwaves through the church. But God is merciful. Moses was, Moses was struggling. He was overwhelmed, like I said. He was exasperated. And it could be, and again, speculation, it could be that Moses was on the verge of burnout and uh, a little look at uh, burnout. One of, the, one of the things that we are passionate about uh, in our ministry is revitalizing and reinvigorating missionaries who may be tired, may be burned out, may be exhausted, may be, may be in the same situation that Moses is in. So I uh, want to look at some of the, the um, characteristics, some of the warning signs of burnout. And I, and I put depression in parentheses, because depression is a clinical situation, um, and it's, it has physiological aspects to it. But depressive symptoms, burnout can, can lead to depression. Depression is a general sense of heaviness. Burnout is usually um, confined to, like, work or, you know, parenting or a specific area. Um, but burnout can grow into depression. So that's why it's in parentheses. I'm not, this isn't a diagnostic tool uh, for a psychological condition. Uh, so the, the first thing, the first sign of burnout is that your motivation is, has failed. 
the passion for ministry, the passion that, that fueled you, that you, know, you loved people and you loved the work is gone or it becomes self-centered. You, you cease to do it for others and it becomes you know, a pride thing. I, I do this because I want to look good in front of people. So the, the motivation issue. The second is that, uh, that sense of, of numbness. The main emotion that you have is numbness. You don't feel highs. You don't feel lows. You're just numb. The third sign um, is that people drain you. Now, there are always people who are draining, um, especially if you're an introvert like me. Believe it or not, I'm an introvert. Um, and, and this is exhausting to me. It's, it, it's, it's invigorating to, to study and to, and to share but this afternoon, I'm going to be done because it's, I, I'm, I'm putting myself out there. And it, so that's, that's an aspect. That's a normal aspect of personality. But uh, when anybody and everybody drains you, um, that's a sign that maybe burnout is, uh, is on the horizon. Um, if, if few or nobody energizes you. The fourth sign is that little things make you disproportionately angry. Just, you know, driving in the car, somebody does something dumb, doesn't use a blinker or whatever, and you're, you're in a rage because, you know, some idiot or whatever. Um, when, when, when you start losing your cool over small things, um, it's maybe a sign that something deeper is going on. Um, the fifth uh, indicator is that uh, you're becoming cynical. That, uh, you know, you question everybody's motive and, and that nobody can, really, nobody can really be that kind or that nice or that happy. Um, and you, you, you tend to see the, the negative side of things. It ne- rarely is a sign of a healthy heart. The sixth thing is uh, that your productivity is dropping. You know, it may be that you're working longer hours, but you're getting less done. Um, or that you're producing less value. What, what you're putting out is, is not as good. If, if, if something used to take you five minutes, now takes you 45 minutes, that may be a sign that you're on the verge of burnout. Uh, the seventh thing is self-medication. Um, coping with these feelings uh, with doing things like uh, overeating or drinking or even overworking, um, impulsive spending, drugs, etc. Obviously, that's a, a huge warning sign. The eighth is that you don't laugh anymore. Nothing's fun, nothing's funny. You begin to resent people who enjoy life. Number nine is that uh, sleep and time off no longer refuel you. It's, it's normal to get to Friday and go, thank God, the weekend, I can sleep in, maybe. Um, I can do what I want to do. I can do something that, you know, is energizing to me. Um, and then go to work on Monday. And, you know, nobody likes Monday, but if you're, you know, you're refu- refreshed a little bit, or if you take a couple of weeks of vacation and you go back to work and, you know, you're pumped and ready to, to go after it again. 
Um, that's normal. But if those breaks and the time off does not refuel you, does not refresh you, um, that's, a, that's a major sign of burning out. So um, what we want to do, not only in our ministry, but as brothers and sisters, is, again, to be honest about those things that are going on in our life. Burnout does not mean you're not a faithful Christian. It just means you're trying to do too much on your own. You're, you're striking a rock instead of speaking to the rock. You're pointing, you know, pointing at yourself rather than pointing at God. So be honest with one another. That's the biggest thing is, is to be honest about this and say, I see these things in my life. Maybe there's something wrong. Maybe you go to a brother or sister in Christ or your, your husband or your wife um, or, you know, accountability partner or pastor to say something's not right. Um, I want to be aware enough of myself and say, I'm not perfect. And, and honestly, Brandon and I were talking about this yesterday, and there's a lot of this in my life. A lot of, I see a lot of this in my, in my getting out of the Navy. I, I was burned out. I was tired and, you know, unappreciated and, uh, and overwhelmed and t- just tired. Um, so burnout is, is rampant or at least moving toward burnout because, again, we're busy. Uh, so we need, to, we need to not rely on ourselves and our own strength to get through it, but to turn to each other and, and, of course, to turn to God. So, again, this is pretty harsh punishment for Moses, but he is the leader. He is the representative. He is the, the pinnacle of the community, and everybody is expecting him. Everybody's looking at him as an example. God doesn't grade on a curve. His standard is perfection, and that can be overwhelming if you're a perfectionist. Um, God's purpose, and we said this last week, is for far more than our happiness. In our culture in general, narcissism and selfishness are, are rampant, but it's, it's present in the church as well. And we don't, we've cultivated it, and, and hear me on this, I, the four spiritual laws are powerful, and people have gotten saved using the four spiritual laws, but... When it says God loves you and has a plan for your life, that's true, but God has a plan. You happen to be a part of it, but the plan is not all about your life. God has a plan, and it involves you, and you coming to him and serving him are part of his plan. But we turn the focus on me. I'm the most important thing. God loves me. Yes, he does. Yes, God does love you. And if you were indeed the only person who ever lived, Christ would have died on the cross to save you. But you're not. And Christ died on the cross to save you and you and you and you and all of us. So it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not your happiness isn't the pinnacle of God's purpose. God's purpose is his his holiness and his glory. And if we do what God tells us to do, we're going to be happy. But that's not the primary reason that, that God wants us to do stuff. Not for our happiness, but for his glory. So the good news is that we don't have to be perfect. God's standard is perfect, perfection, but our righteousness before God is not based on our performance. It's not based on how well we do. It's not based on... Did our good deeds outweigh our bad? Are we better than somebody else? 
They're based on what Christ did on the cross. The good news is Christ is perfect. Therefore, we are perfect. We still have a responsibility as leaders, as parents, as siblings, as Christians, to be faithful to reflect the holiness of God because somebody is looking at us and somebody is looking for an example and you as a Christian in your workplace dealing with frustration, somebody said something to you or did something to you or something happened, how are you going to respond? That's how, Christians re- that's how all Christians respond. All Christians are just like you in the eyes of those people you work with that may not know any other Christians. So we, are, we have to be faithful to reflect that, the holiness of God. But we can only do that through God's power. We don't, we don't point and say, must I do this for you? Must I demonstrate what proper Christians do in the face of this? No. We say, this is what God has done for me. This is how God helps me get through these situations. So finally, so we talked about uh, Moses' frustration. We talked about Moses' failure. Let's talk about Moses' future. Excuse me. Every sin has consequences. When we do something wrong, there will be consequences for that. Sometimes God is gracious and doesn't give us the fullness of those consequences, but he has to discipline us. He has to teach us. Moses' sin cost him the promised land. That was an earthly reward. Not that big a deal. He's old. You know, he didn't get to cross the river. But God took him up on the mountain to show him. So there it is. That's, where, that's, that's the, the reason that you've been leading these people. They're going there. Isn't it amazing? God told him he's not going into the promised land. But his grace was greater. You know, when we sin, God doesn't put us on a list. We don't, we're not on his, uh, you know, on his bad side. He doesn't remove us from usefulness. He doesn't say, well, I'm, I'm done with you because you did something wrong. Praise God. Because, I don't know, nothing personal, but none of us would be qualified to serve the Lord. Because none of us is perfect. But God can use our failures for his glory. It says in, in Numbers 20 that, verse 13, through them, through this quarreling and through Moses' failure, God showed himself holy. Psalm 103, verse 8 through 13 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God removes our sin, our iniquities, as far as the east is from the west. He doesn't hold them against us. He doesn't keep he doesn't keep that he doesn't keep putting that in our face, saying, Remember that time that you did this, remember that time that you didn't do the right thing, that you said that, or that you God doesn't do that. He puts it, he puts it behind. He disciplines us so that we don't make the same mistakes again. The pain of remembering our failure serves to keep us from doing it again, from making the same choices. 
Sometimes we remember the consequences of our sin to say, I don't ever want to do that again. I don't want to deal with that discipline again. I don't want to deal with what that does to my family or what that does to my witness or what that does at work. I don't want to deal with those consequences again, so I'm not going to do that again. Even, even pastors, when they have these moral failures, they are rightly removed from, the, from leadership in the church. doesn't mean they can't do anything, but they can't be the upfront guy. In Moses' situation, he was removed from being the upfront guy. And it says in, and, and this is great, Deuteronomy 34, where Moses dies, the end of his life, verse 7 says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. God continued to bless Moses till the day he died. He didn't die of old age. He didn't die because he shut down. Actually, it says that God kind of just, God buried him. Nobody knows where. Um, but we see Moses again in the New Testament. Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop with Jesus transfigured. Yeah. Moses, he made it. He reached the promised land, if not the earthly promised land. He received a reward. God, God gave Moses a gift when he said, you're not going to the promised land. He said, you are relieved of command. Emphasis on relieved. What a relief. I no longer have to deal with these people. Let me, let me take Joshua, this young guy full of energy. You know what? He, he's in charge now. He's going to take them. Because you know what? Once they crossed that river, were they done? They had a lot of work to do. They still had a lot to do to take possession of the promised land. So God said, okay, you've served me well, Moses. Here's a break. And you don't have to do that. God takes our mistakes, uses, for, uses them for his purposes. Moses' doubt at the waters of Meribah, as we read in several passages, became a reminder, a powerful warning to the people. So as we finish, this, this verse from 1 Corinthians 10.13 may be familiar to you. There's no temptation that's overtaking you that's not common to man, but God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with every temptation, he'll also provide a way of escape that you might be able to stand up against, uh, under it or endure it. Probably heard that verse before, maybe one of the first verses I memorized as a Christian, because that, that's a powerful fighting verse, that I can do this because God is going to make a way in every temptation. But look at the context of that verse. If, if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 4, actually, let's look at verse 6. This is talking about Israel. Israel in the desert. That's the context of the verse is in. It says, now these things took place, Israel in the desert, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We must not, let's see, um, we must not put Christ, verse 9, to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Now these things happened to them, verse 11, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone, verse 12, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. These are provided as an example. Moses' failure is provided as an example. Knowing that in every situation, whatever temptation, there's a way out. Moses had a way out. He didn't exercise that out. But God provided a way. God told him exactly what to do. Moses failed to do it. He was tempted. He, was, you know, he had all this stuff going on. God knows we got a lot going on. He knows that there's a lot on our plates. But he also provides us the means. And what we have that Moses didn't have is the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit living in us that gives us not only the strength and the ability, but the insight to say, you don't want to go down this road. Either you've been down that road, or that guy's been down that road, or remember that time, or maybe even if you go down that road, here's what could happen. It, it can be purely, you know, the Holy Spirit saying, these are going to be the consequences if you do that. So that's our way out in all cases. The Holy Spirit living in us and indwelling us. That we can have, we can have, stand up under those trials. That we can endure temptation. Sin has consequences, but God's grace is greater. God disciplines us to teach to teach us how much he loves us. I want to close with Psalm 95. What is the solution to being overwhelmed and to being exasperated and frustrated? How do we endure what we're told in Psalm 95? Oh, come let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the desert, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The solution is worship. Trust in God. For water or for whatever. Whatever it is that we need, how do we find it? Moses and Aaron went to God in prayer. We come to God in prayer and in worship. If you'd like to know more about that, if, if, if you're struggling as a believer and, and with some situation, absolutely, we can pray with you. I, I don't have the answers. 
because I'm not bringing water out of the rock. But I can go to God with you. We can pray together as brothers and sisters and say, God, what do we do? But if you don't know, if you don't have that relationship with God through Christ, then I, I would love to talk to you about that. So as, uh, as, as we pray in a moment, if you want to come forward as we sing, uh, and uh, I'll be happy to pray with you. And uh, Fitz will be up here. Rachel can help. Uh, just If, if you want to pray with somebody, come talk to us. And if you're not comfortable coming forward, talk to the person next to you. They might know something. And if they don't, then maybe you come together, safety in numbers, and talk. After, after all this, uh, you know, coming up and everybody looking at you, stuff is over. We'll be around afterward. We'd love to talk to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a holy God and that you are perfect. God, that we, we can't come to you in our imperfection. We thank you for that. Because you are so much greater than us. You are a God who is bigger than anything that we could ever imagine. You are more powerful than we can imagine a being. And you're a God that's bigger than, than our ability to, to please you. But God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for sending your son to die on a cross to be our perfection, to be our righteousness. That if we trust you, we can be holy. So God, remind us that our holiness is in you, that our righteousness is in Christ. And help us to, by your spirit, be obedient, to stand under temptation, to honor you, to trust you, and to follow you. Not because we are good enough, because, but because you are holy and you are good enough. Father, thank you this day for your blessings. Thank you that we get to live in this great country and enjoy freedom. And we pray that we don't take that for granted. We pray that we don't take your presence for granted, but that we are thankful in all things. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray.